kids. We'll, we'll do the youngest two kids at some week and then you'll learn nothing about the announcements. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, a couple things to share with you before we start in. Um, some people have asked when Lloyd's like, first sermon is going to be. Like, when can we get Lloyd online? It's going to be the best of all worlds. Nick and Lloyd every week. Um, and uh, so he, Lloyd wisely has taken a few weeks of vacation between ending here and starting there. That's fairly common for pastors. And so it'll be a few weeks before he'll be on River Valley Church of Aurora's website. But that's where it'll be. Um, some people have asked for an update on Mike Beresford, our executive pastor, who had open heart surgery. And I think he had like nine bypasses or something like that. Um, and he has a big heart. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, so he just wanted you to know that he really turned an energy corner last week. Apparently he's played golf a couple of times, and um, he's doing better. Uh, continue to pray for his, his other pain issues, but, um, but he's, doing, he's doing good. Um, people have, some people asked about pastoral care with Lloyd gone. Pastoral care was a big part of Lloyd's job. Um, Tim Check, who is our um, pastoral fellow, is um, going to be taking over pastoral care. He'd already been working with Lloyd. He already knows the congregational plan that we have. Our deacons and elders are working with him. In case you don't know, pastoral fellow means has already been to seminary and is pastoring. It just means that he's training to then go be a pastor, senior pastor at another church when he's done sort of cutting his teeth here a little bit post-seminary. But Tim is fully trained and a great pastor, and you really will love interacting with him, I think, more. Lastly, the Sexuality Everywhere Conference for 2020 is still going to happen at least as a um, virtual thing, and hopefully there will be some in-person components. Um, we uh, badly interacted with timing-wise with Jackie Hill Perry because it turned out that she's going to be having a baby almost exactly when the conference is happening. So she actually is no longer our speaker for this year. Um, instead, our main speaker is Christopher Yuan. Christopher Yuan is a, um, is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He had a book come out recently called Holy— um, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationship Shapes by God's Grand Story. Um, everyone who I have heard who's read it, I've only read just a little bit of it, has said it's fabulous. That it's a very well-reasoned and argued book from Scripture. Um, uh, as you'll know if you come to the conference, Christopher, if you want, is a same-sex attracted man. Um, and he goes over, like, the relationship with his parents. He has spent time in prison in the past. <laughs> like, he has a wild story that you will benefit from a lot. So we're re really excited that we were able to get Christopher. And so um, you'll hear more about that in the coming weeks, but uh, we are still having the conference. Please plan on it. And it is, uh, I mean, I should give you a date, shouldn't I? October 10th, 2020. Okay. For the sermon, if you're watching online or using your phone to follow in the service, um, uh, we do an AMA after the service. That's a ask me anything time for about 15 minutes. You can send in questions through the chat. Just put AMA in the question. Um, but please don't answer questions in the chat until I have tried and failed. Okay, so um, there it is. So if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to do verses 13 to 18 this morning. And it's going to be fantastic. Okay. Here's what the text says. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, 
and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In the time I've been pastoring, one of the things that I've noticed is that is that um, sometimes there is a confluence of two things that will conspire in the human heart as we interact mentally and emotionally with ourselves and our world that can really destroy faith. And one is, and what they are is when the presence of suffering and difficulty and just the trials of normal life that we often struggle with come together with the immediate experience of loss and grief. Someone dies. Something, some, or something similar happens where something is burned to ashes before our eyes. There's a phenomenon with people who have real love towards others that there's something sometimes more painful about the death of another person than ourselves. I've seen people cope better with their own mortality than with the mortality of a spouse or a child or a very close friend. I've seen more people lose their faith when they, someone in their life dies than when they're dying themselves, right? If death is an injustice, it's the same whether you're dying or they're dying, but for, for some reason, there's something about seeing someone else die. Like, you don't really watch yourself die. You feel yourself die. When somebody else dies, you watch them die, and it's different. It affects human emotions differently. And when someone is already suffering with the normal difficulties of life, and then they have somebody who they care about die, the two coming in confluence with each other strengthen each other in a way that has the effect oftentimes of ruining faith right when it can be the most comfort, the most strength. Right? Um, as you look at this passage, there's four things that the Apostle Paul wants to be the effect of this passage. Obviously, the passage is about the resurrection. Not just our resurrection, but the resurrection of others we care about, right? The emphasis here isn't just, hey, I want you to know about the resurrection. That's not the point here. The resurrection is stipulated. We already believe that. He's like, I want you to know something about the resurrection. You might fear that what's going to happen to the resurrection is, is those of us who are still alive when Jesus returns are going to go to heaven and everybody else is going to be left behind. For, or maybe, maybe they'll be raised at some point, but maybe it takes a long time. I mean, who knows how long it takes to reconstitute a body? Maybe it's a long time. It's billions of cells after all, right? Like, you, none, of, none of those details— have been clarified at this point, and Jesus didn't explicitly say exactly how bodies were raised. And so people really didn't know if there would be a reunification or what that might mean, right? Some people think that the Apostle Paul thought that he would be alive at the time of the resurrection, or that the early Christians did, right? Um, there's, a, there's a couple of misnomers in this passage. One is that because um, the people who have already died are referred to as asleep, some people have taken from that the doctrine that that's what happens, that when you die, you kind of fall asleep, and then you, like, just wake up at the resurrection. Um, it's a, they call the doctrine of soul sleep. It's actually incorrect. This is a euphemism and a metaphor of what death looks like to us, because he's talking—that's what he's talking about. He's talking about how you and I experience the death of others. They appear to fall asleep, and then Jesus died and 
rose, right? The word for rise in this passage, aneste. So if you've ever seen my big fat Greek wedding or you've been around Greeks, it's, they're like, Christo aneste, right? On, Christ, on Easter, Christ is risen. That's from this verse. It's nowhere else in the Bible. Christ rose, right? The, the word everywhere else in the Bible is erege, or it's, it's, it's a word for resurrection or rose from the dead, right? This is the only place where Jesus rose. You see how the metaphor is? Some, the dead fall asleep. Christ rises. They will rise. He's working a metaphor. It's not meant to be doctrinal. In 2 Corinthians, it's meant to be doctrinal when he says that when we are out of this tent of the body, we are in the presence of the Lord, right? So there is the capacity for disembodied existence. We can exist in the presence of the Lord until we're reunited with our raised bodies so that we're in conscious relationship with God after we die. Does that make sense? I'm not going to go more into that now because there's other things to go into right now, okay? Uh, the second thing is people say, well, well Paul thought he would— be alive when Jesus returned, this must mean that he was wrong, and it must mean Christianity is all wrong because they must have thought that Jesus was going to come back immediately. That's not what he says. He says, we who are still alive at the return of the Lord, right? He's not saying that we, the people who were in Thessalonica in the first century, were going to be alive. He's stipulating, like, whoever is the church who is alive at that point, the, the main, the, there's going to be a distinction between those who are still alive when Jesus gets here and those who aren't. How is that going to work? He's not saying he's going to be alive, and he's not saying you're going to be alive. Every generation of Christians has always thought they would be the ones alive for the return of Jesus. And so far, it's been 100% wrong. <laughs> right? And people are like, oh, times are bad. Like, Nick, right now there's the coronavirus. There's like protests. Yeah, well, the Black Plague killed a third of the population of Europe a bunch of times. Okay, like this is, this is nothing compared to that. This is serious for us. Right? But it's, I mean, come on. This ain't the Civil War. This, I mean, like, you know, I mean, speaking of an era of peace, I mean, John Sekotowski, our children's minister, just married Christina Flaherty, who is the senior pastor of City Church's daughter. So we don't have to go to war with City Church for like a generation, right? Like, so this'll be great. Look, it's, it's the, it's the Pock, the Pock Sekotowski, you know? So the, the point, the reason why the Apostle is telling us this is not to say that we sleep in death and not to say that he was going to be alive for the return of Jesus. The focus was this, is that hope is rooted in promise. Okay? Hope is rooted in promise. And if the people of God do not know the promise of God, then they will be ignorant and they will not have the capacity to have hope and courage and perseverance, which are necessary in all of the sufferings of life, but especially when the sufferings and difficulties of life come in confluence with the tragedy of death. That is a key moment where faith can be destroyed. And at that moment, especially, you need all of the hope, especially the hope of the resurrection as it is, right? So that the result can be not that Christians don't have grief— because Christi Christians are rooted in the world in our embodied existence. We experience the world like everybody else experiences the world. And so we experience grief. It is a horrible thing when a loved one dies. It is a manifestation of the curse. It is against the original nature of God. It is a horrible thing. And if we have real relationships and we love image-bearing people and we care about the world that God has put us in and we care about the purpose of our lives and the lives of others, death is horrible. There is grief. And I would wager, in some sense, if the heart is made alive by the Spirit, the grief of Christians might be more than had we not been Christians. But in the presence of that grief is hope. 
a sure and certain hope directly related to the promise of God in relationship to the resurrection, right? The third thing is, is that throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, we recognize that there is, there's trials, right? He talks about all of the things they've been through. In fact, the passage right before this, he says to them, he says, the reason I sent, who I sent to you with this letter is because I was afraid you would have lost your faith. With all the stuff that was going down, all the persecution, all the hatred that they were going to kill me and you had to sneak me away and I had to run and you were left behind. I, like, I thought you would lose your faith, meaning he recognized that their good name was getting destroyed. Their, their labor, like their ability to work in their community, make a living was getting destroyed. And for some of them, their life was probably getting destroyed. They probably had lost people to death in persecution. And in the midst of that um, trial, discouragement, especially when you see people die, and your emotions begin to think your thoughts for you and say, God doesn't care about us. They, he let so-and-so die. That wouldn't have happened right? And then there's also the temptation to believe in the futility of pursuing godliness. Because when you see someone die, right, it feels like that's the most important thing. It feel, the death is so strong because of how physiological, how, how real it is, and how it, it connects with you. It feels like all of the other stuff doesn't matter. It, it pushes everything out for a moment, and it makes it feel like all of the all the striving, all of the moral interest, all of the spiritual care, all the stuff that you believed in more than just the functioning of cells, it, did it matter? Does it, does it matter? I mean, what matters when you look on a dead body? Right? Like, I don't know how many dead people you've seen, but there's something eerie about it when the, the human body is disenchanted from life. It is, it's, it's unnerving how the person is there and yet you don't recognize them. There's something totally gone, right? And it, it, it can cause people to think, this is the final reality. This is the large reality. In that moment, death becomes God. And when death is God, nothing matters, especially goodness and the pursuit of godliness. Because that's all rooted in hope. And so death has the ability to extinguish all of that life if we look upon it without a rootedness in hope. And so the apostle's like, he just told us in chapter 4, right? Pursue godliness and let it play out in love. That's what you're doing. But when you see your friend die, you wonder, like, is all this pursuit of godliness worth anything? And is all this sacrificial love worth anything, right? And so one of the— ways to, to simplify this is that the human heart will either fall into sentimentality as a response to the starkness that they see, which is to just believe everything's going to be fine. Right? Like, this is bad, but ultimately things must be good because this is so bad. Right? Or to fall off on the other side of presumption to assume that what I, well, I'll just call cynicism, which is everything has to be bad because this is bad. Because I see death right in front of me, that defines everything because this is clearly bad and I've experienced suffering and that's bad. Everything must be in the end bad, right? And neither of those are faithful to human experience and life and purpose, nor to following God and knowing Christ, right? And there is a constructive struggle in the middle of that that recognizes that everything isn't nice, but is full of promise, and is working toward an end 
that looks like the glory of God. And on the other side, that it, it can push away the cynicism that wants to creep in and says that, no, there is hope. And to stay between those two and to not be taken by either requires a certain kind of courage that is informed by very specific promise, right? So what is that promise? The promise is really simple. That you are to take hope and courage knowing that the dead in Christ will rise. That's it. You are to take— you have, you have work to do here, okay? Faith has to do work. You have to take for yourself hope and courage knowing this promise that the dead in Christ will rise. Okay? So let's—we're going to look at three things, obviously, because it's the sermon. Okay, the first is the dead in Christ will rise like Christ. The dead in Christ will rise like Christ. Right? It says in verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have—that was a good test—those who have fallen asleep in him. Right? So, so notice— to the apostle, these two are directly connected. We believe Jesus died a real death, and he rose. So that, because we believe that, we believe that those who are dead in Christ will rise. Now, follow the logic of this. First, it focuses on the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead, right? In Acts— it says—this is the next slide if we, if we see it at some point here—but in Acts 2, 23, 24, if you want to write it down, it says, you—so Peter's preaching to the Jewish leaders that crucified Jesus. He said, you, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. Right? But in addition to the fact that Jesus is the God-man in— inevitably rose from the dead because death could not keep hold on him. What, the, the question that arises is, why should that matter for us? Why does that matter for us? Why can't Jesus just rise from the dead, not us? And, and he gives the answer in chapter, in verse 14, he says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Right? For similar— if you're similar doctrines, you can look at Romans 8, 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and 2 Corinthians 4, 14, which is this idea. And, and a lot of evangelical, like, bible Christians, like people who like to study the Bible and stuff, are not very good on this particular doctrine, which is sometimes called union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ. One of the things that happens when we put our faith in Christ and we're justified— Right? We're forgiven of our sins. We're counted just in Christ. Then the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, we become the righteousness of God in him. So you see, a lot of people like us don't have any trouble believing that in Christ, that is by having faith in Christ, we come in union with the righteousness of God. That's what imputation means or, or justification. We come in union with the righteousness of Christ. But that, the, the scriptures don't stop there. The, the doctrine of union with Christ is more complete than that. We are in union with him entirely. The Spirit lives in you. You are in spiritual, holistic, personal union with Christ himself. Do you understand? And what that means is Jesus isn't rising from the dead without you. 
The doctrine of the union of Christ means that you are united with him. And it says this explicitly in the book of Romans. In faith, we're united with him in his death and therefore in his resurrection. It says in the book of Philippians—in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. He says this about what that means mystically as he walks with Jesus through sufferings and triumphs. He says, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? What is he saying? He's saying, well, I don't know exactly mystically how that happens, but what I know is that in my union with Christ's righteousness, I'm also in union with Christ himself. And when I walk with him— in his suffering and death, I am also going to walk with him in his resurrection and life. That is the promise. And you and I, friends, we can—you can't be ignorant of that promise if you're a believer. There are other hopes besides the hope of the resurrection that can give you certain amounts of courage in the face of certain things, right? Like you can believe that at some point the coronavirus is going to end and we're all going to see the light of day and, you know, like somebody's going to physically touch you. Like, it, like life is going to go on and you can hope in that. And that's very likely that that's going to happen, right? Very likely. But who knows what else is going to happen? The only ultimate hope, because you're still going to die. The only ultimate hope is the hope of the resurrection, the hope of promise. Does that make sense? Okay, so— the first is, is that Christ is raised, and you are in union with him by faith, and if both of those are true, the dead in Christ will rise. The resurrection of Christ indicates the resurrection of the dead that you can participate in. Now, when I was talking this over with some staff members, one of the things Ashlyn said was, she said, yeah, what this makes me think of is how important it is that other people, that we be really faithful to tell other people about Jesus, that other people knowing Jesus matters because this is conditional. Um, the modern, a lot of the modern translations take this out, but the actual creedal statement here has the word if in it. What it says is, if we believe Christ is raised, rose, rose again, then even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. It's a conditional statement. The argument here is not that everybody rises in, in Christ. The idea here is that those who are in him rise in Christ. It is specifically conditional to the creedal question of do you believe in Jesus the Christ? So that in receiving his righteousness, you receive union with him so that you are in union with him in his death and in his resurrection. So that you'll be in union with him in your death and in your resurrection. There's a lot of translators don't like translating conditionals in creeds because it doesn't seem right, but one of the, one of the creeds in 2 Timothy chapter 2 has all conditionals in it, and we're supposed to recite it with the conditionals because there are some things in Christian faith that are conditional. There are things that God says we have to participate in if we want to participate in his promise. So this verse says, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 13, here's a trustworthy saying. Here's a hope you can bank on. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, that is in faith, if we persevere, we will also reign with him, that is in resurrection life, right? If we disown him, he will disown us. That is, we have to take and claim and hold to the name of Christ as our own. And then he says, and if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Meaning, we can be faithless, he can never be. He will always do what's right. He will always do what is in line with his own will and purpose and character. That's why all these are conditional. Because he will choose 
the truth in himself and his divine character over us if we fight with him. But if we fulfill the ifs, he will always fulfill the buts. Right? Okay, the second thing is that in Christ, the resurrection is a certain hope. In Christ, the resurrection is a certain hope. So, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's a summary where the Apostle Paul talks about the connection of Christ's resurrection to our resurrection. Right? He says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. See, there's that metaphor again for death. Verse 12, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Right? So, you see what he's saying? There are some people who said, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but there's people don't rise from the dead. And Paul's saying, that doesn't work. That logic doesn't work. That it could just be Christ and not us if we believe in him. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Meaning, Jesus was a man. He was the divine God-man, but he was a man. And if he is raised as a member of humanity and a figurehead over humanity, then humanity is raised. If God had no intention to raise humanity, he would not have raised the body of Jesus from the dead because the Son would have ascended. There's a reason for him to keep the body. If it was not a statement that there was something inherently meaningful about human life and that he had come to redeem and raise human life, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus was to demonstrate not that they had not killed God, but that God raises the dead. That's his argument, implicitly. I'm adding to it a little. Then he says in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. For only—if if for only this life we have hope in Christ— we are of all people the most to be pitied. See the arguments he's making there? The resurrection demonstrated that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. That's why the resurrection of Christ means we're not still in our sins. It also, however, means that God has an interest in raising the dead and will because he raised Christ from the dead. So the resurrection is a sure and certain hope. Right? And that's rooted in the resurrection itself. And thirdly, he says— that the Christian life and faith cannot make ultimate sense without the belief in a future resurrection. Okay? If you believe that living the Christian life is a good life, and it's the best way to live, and it will maximize your happiness, because when you're loving towards others and you live in godliness yourself, it brings blessing— and therefore, it is the best human life and the most likely to make you and others happy and the most likely to be full. And it's the fullest life that you can live. The problem there is there's a fallacy on the word full. You're using it to mean two different things. Yes, it is full of the blessing of inherent worship and valuing the God who exists. There is a fullness totally not related to any circumstance that creates the fullest human life. True. But if in the basic operation of human life, 
you think it's the best life. That is false. Because the Christian life that Jesus lived, and the Jesus, and the Jesus life that his early followers lived, and the Christian life that you are called to live, is a life of profound sacrifice, counting others better than yourself, willing to face suffering, recognizing that if your master is hated, you will be too, at least by some segment of people, that your good name may get destroyed because of that faith and faithfulness, that you may lose your ability to make a living, that your life may be ended, and you will see and lose people, and you may see them die. And that is all wrapped up in this. And if it is only for this life and how good the Christian life is that you and I would hope in him, then we are of all people the most to be pitied, he says. That's why he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, friends, about the resurrection, I do not want you to be ignorant. You have to know this, right? And then he, then he also says, not just about relative to the resurrection of the dead, but also he says, I tell you this is from the Lord's own word, right? It's not just that he reasons from the resurrection validly, but it was also plainly true that throughout all of Jesus' teachings, he taught a general resurrection of the dead for all people, right? The Sadducees attack him because he's, he's been so public about the idea of the resurrection from the dead that in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he gets attacked by the Sadducees. They're like, listen, let me give you this, this counterfactual about the resurrection from the dead that you can't work on, right? That you won't be able to answer. The premise is Jesus teaches the resurrection of the dead everywhere, and so he can be attacked on it, right? When Lazarus dies, and he goes and he talks to Martha, and Martha says, if my brother was here, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he said, your brother will rise. And, and, and Martha, without missing a beat, says, I know that Lazarus will live in the resurrection from the dead. You see, Martha was already sufficiently steeped in the teaching of Jesus that she knew immediately what he was talking about. It's like, oh, she said, of course, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. Of course. And Lazarus will rise. Like, she knew that was the do right doctrine. And then Jesus was like, he's also going to rise, like, in about 10 minutes. After I hug Mary. Right? In numerous places, this is really clear that throughout the teaching of Jesus, there's a clear teaching that he said— there will be a resurrection from the dead, right? We'll get into times and judgments and stuff in the next passage, but here he's focused on this. So let's look at the last one, um, which is, go to point three if you can there, that the dead in Christ are not lost to us. I used to think this was kind of a sentimental point, right? Like, I hear people say things like, you know, we're going to see Grandma Alice someday. I remember going to my friend Jack McDougall's house, one of my close spearfishing buddies in Florida, and— um, one of, one of their parents had just died. I can't even remember which one it is now. I, I want to say it was his, his mom. I can't remember. Anyway, but he said, he, he huddled his family together. They were all crying. And he said, he looked in the, the eyes of his, his kids and his wife, and he said, we are going to see him again. We're going to see him again. And they cried more when he said that. They nodded, they brightened, and they cried more. Right? That's the Christian response. It makes it all the more bittersweet in a way, and yet it's filled with a certain kind of hope. Right? There is a, there's a certain kind of crying, right, that is sad and hopeful at the same time, and that is Christian grief. That's what Christian grief feels like. Does that make sense? I, um— I had um, Nellie put together—I can't find it right now. I've got so many papers up here—a um, list of all of the faithful dead just in the last 10 years here at High Point. 
So many. I remember, most of you remember Phil Porter, right? She passed away a year or two ago, just like a force of nature lady in her 80s, like telling everybody about Jesus, even if you already believed in him, or you were the mailman, you know? There was a woman who sat here in the front row, Lois Dvorak, that um, was, Phil was considered the lesser force of nature relative to her. I mean, she was like, I mean, she could, I mean, she could make the pews move by looking at them. I mean, this, this woman was like really intense, and, and she passed away just the year before I came, right? And they were like, oh, Lois was, she was, she was alive during my candying process, but gone by the time I got here. Numerous people, older saints that had been here for years, and, um, and, and young children. I mean, I've, I've buried—I mean, I can think of three children off the top of my head that I've buried. I mean, Louisa Hale this year, and um, the Steinhauers, maybe a few years back. Um, and uh, I remember Timothy Kutzinger, five months in the womb. They lost him. And, and these are— These are all tragedies, right? These are all losses. They're all real, and they were all mourned. And yet, they're all hoped in. Like, part of heaven is not—you're not going to live by yourself. Like, the idea of heaven isn't just like, you beat death, you get to live forever. No, you get to live with the originally intended version of every person that Jesus has redeemed. Right? Um, free and healed from all of the brokenness that made your relationship so problematic here, (laughs) from all that struggle, and yet um, still themselves, and with God. Like the apostle says, we'll be caught up, and we will be with him forever. Meaning the dead that were just raised, and all of us who are still here, they'll go up first, then us, then we'll be together, and we'll all be with the Lord forever. And that's supposed to be helpful. It's not— It's not a diminution of worship to care that there will be other people in heaven besides Jesus. I mean, I think sometimes there's a false idea in worship that like we should be so enthralled with God that we won't care who's in heaven. We'll be so focused on God. And I'm I'm sure that will be true for a while. But Part of the promise, right, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the dead are not lost. Here he says, he's like, I want you to know what's going to happen to the people you've seen die, right? Those who are in Christ— they're going to rise, and you're going to see them, and you're going to be with them, and you need to— inc- And then what's the last line? He says, I want you to encourage each other with these words. Right? If you can show those last slides of that couple. So, so um, I got sent—there's there's, there's there's like a consortium of old people who used to go to Middleton Baptist Church, who became, that became High Point Church, that don't come here anymore, that send emails around about like people who've died and stuff. And they—I got oh, and, and one recently of this couple, um, Sam and Mary Davenport. Um, and, and Sam was like—I don't know if he was the employed or if he was just the, like, servant janitor for Middleton Baptist Church for years. But this is him and his wife. And then the next picture is—so Dick Sisson, like, three senior pastors ago. That's their 60th anniversary, celebrated at High Point, right? And then the next one is one of the, one of the last things Sam did publicly— was he staggered up to the side of a building, go to the next one, and he put mortar in it. Now, if you're observant at all, and you've been coming to High Point, you've walked by that stone every time you've come in this building. He was the old saint, one of the old saints, that was chosen because of his service to the church for decades to stick that mortar in that cornerstone as a symbol of what they had built for a witness of Christ that would go generations beyond them. 
right? You can go to the last one. That's them after they had completed it. I think it took them 45 minutes. I'm just kidding. Uh, and then they, they sat down. That was one of the last things they did publicly. He passed away very soon after this, apparently. I never met him. I have no idea. Who, I, other than these pictures, I have no idea who Sam and Mary are, right? But, I'm, I, but I believe not as sweet to me as that I'm going to meet Jesus, and not as sweet to me as I'm going to meet my grandfather, Nicola, I believe, that, I, that died when I was three. But sweetly, I believe that I will meet Sam and Mary, and I will thank them for what they did for me and my children in this city, and what they sacrificed, and how they lived. And I believe I will meet an innumerable number of saints that have touched my life, and that my life hopefully will have touched. And I believe that that will be an eternal pleasure. And I believe that that pleasure will not be a lack of worship, but that Jesus will stand as a father and older brother over all of that redemption and smile, that all of that interchanging affirmation and enjoyment, he will see as a kind of echoing worship because it is what he bought. And we will enjoy all of it in ways we have not yet imagined. And you are going to need those promises in your life. You need to not be ignorant. You need to know it. You need to recognize that that hope can carry you in grief. You do not need to shut down the grief, but you need to let the hope accompany you as a companion in grief. You need to allow it to help you to take courage in every suffering, and you need to let it inspire you to continue to pursue godliness because it matters. So when we take these simple elements of communion that obviously do not feel very spiritual in these little sterilized cups. Um, they still represent the same bread and wine of a feast of people together who have been raised in him, who belong to him, who will love each other in him forever. So if you're a believer, you should take this. If you don't have one of these, raise your hand because Aaron will bring you one. She's qualified to do this. She was a barista before she was on our staff um, and has trained others. So um, if you're a believer, you should take this. It represents something. It's a ritual, and it's meant to—